Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And I am very pleased to welcome to the show Jonathan Rosenblum, uh, a.k.a. Jonas and Rosenblum, columnist for Mishpacha, writer extraordinaire, someone who's chronicled uh, 20th and 21st century Jewish Orthodox life uh, for uh, for me and for other readers out there. And uh, we're here to talk this morning, uh, and, and he's not a political guy. He will disavow, you know, he's more about a community community guy, but uh, I about the concept or the role of Shtadlanim in the 20th century in American orthodoxy, which was recently profiled in the current issue of Jewish Action, the quarterly magazine of the Orthodox Union. Jonas, and welcome to Spin Class. Michael, it's good to see you again. I only say the disclaimer that you're not a political guy is because even though I'm an avid reader of your columns and you do write about politics, I think generally it's more uh, ideological than it is political. Um, and so I, I, I don't want to mischaracterize my my impressions. I'm not political in the sense that I don't, uh, I'm not a, a racetrack tout. You know, I'm not predicting winners and losers. That's not my... Uh, that's not my job. But in every other sense, I'm certainly uh, fully involved in, in writing about politics and writing about uh, policy decisions. Uh, right now I'm working on Iran, which is, of course, the big issue on everybody's mind. Um, but anyhow, my, my characterizing me is the least of our, our problems. <laughs> I, I hear that. Well, maybe we can get into some contemporary issues uh, as we as we move on. But first and foremost, I want to talk talk about some of the characters and some of the personalities that you have uh, described very well in in over the years. But uh, three of them, uh, most specifically, Rabbi Moshe Scherer. Uh, uh, Reb, uh, Eli Melech, uh, uh, Gabriel Tress, and Zev Wolfson, uh, three that you profiled in Jewish action. Uh, maybe there were a couple more, but, uh, you know, those three. And maybe we could talk for a second about the concept of the Stadlun. And I know that we had a guest on uh, two weeks ago uh, who talked about the decline of Stadlunus, actually, uh, that everybody in everybody can kind of uh, pick up Twitter and become their own Stadlun these days. Uh, when it comes to representing the Orthodox community. So uh, maybe you could take us on a little bit of a retrospective understanding on what it means to be a Shadlan, what it means, uh, and what it meant to some of these Jewish leaders. Well, I think, first and foremost, it means to care very deeply about the Jewish people and be willing to get your hands dirty to do whatever it takes to benefit them. I mean, in one sense, uh, Zev Wolfson, for instance, was uh, more or less self-appointed. He found out that he could get a reduction in, in some duties on some products he was importing. He said, well, if I can do this for my own business, what could I do for the Jewish people? And uh, set off to do it. Um, you know, Mike Tress was probably driven primarily by the rescue and relief work, the visa work at the beginning of the war. And that, and besides creating the Aguda movement in America, but I mean, on a Stadlanus basis in D.C. and so forth, uh, very heavily involved in, in the rescue operations around, uh, around uh, the, uh, the Holocaust. Um, and that had many facets to it, but they were all centered there. Um, Moshe Sher came in with a very clear vision of creating an independent orthodoxy, 
I mean, one of the reasons that there's probably less Stadlanus today, there's not less Stadlanus, there's maybe more, but it may be less, it could sometimes be less effective if you have so many voices speaking for orthodoxy. Um, but I don't know how you really can control that because they do, in fact, have somewhat different perspectives on issues. Uh, uh, you know, Nate Diamond is not the same person as Abba Cohn. They're not the same person. They're not representing the same constituency. And they're both in, equally entitled to, to have their say in Washington, as is Satmar and so forth. Um, but sometimes they can make things a little bit less effective, a little less coordinated. Uh, Rabbi Sheer in his time used to coordinate many things with uh, Rabbi Naftali Neuberger, who had been a classmate of his at Nair Yisrael, and they did a lot of things in concert because each one of them had a, Rolod a very large Rolodex, and they could often supplement one another's activities, especially in the Iranian rescue was one issue, uh, preserving the draft deferment for yeshiva students was another, and they worked hand-in-hand in, hand in a number of crucial issues. Um, okay, I think that's enough for the... We'll, let's get the next question. Okay, <laughs> well, well, why don't we start off historically, since uh, I guess there's a idea that the Stadlin is the person who intercedes with government on behalf of the community, and it's one of the... It, kind of goes back to Europe, uh, even maybe earlier when they were maybe called court Jews, and there were, and then there were those with, you know, Moser Montefiore being the uh, probably the world-renowned first kind of international Stadlin, uh, if you will, uh, who crossed the lines across empires to save to save Jews and uh, Jewish issues in the 1800s, and that became a more crucial role. America being a different place where Jews are, were entitled to vote uh, or are entitled to vote, I should say. Uh, so certainly changed the role to some degree. But for the immigrant communities that came over in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, how did how did some of these American Jewish Orthodox figures approach their diminutive status uh, in a way with Orthodoxy being a minority within a minority and a small one, if that? Well, I know when the Agudas started... Uh, Post-war, I think sometimes in, in involved around the UN resolutions, other organizations said, who are you? You guys are nobodies. We're not going to sign on any document where the Aguda, because of its alphabetical uh, uh, prominence, would have been at the top of the list. So, uh, you know, in a sense, Rabbi Sher built up this an amazing organization which had disproportionate impact. Um, I don't know. I, I, clearly, Rabbi Sher could intellectualize that problem. Mike, Mike, Mike Tress, on the other hand, and maybe even, I mean, Zev Wolfson certainly studied hard. You know, uh, I was told, I think Rev Revson from the Bay Yerushalayim told me he used to read the congressional record. He was, he paid attention. He was always deciding where is the, the point where, uh, the inflection point where you can have the most impact. I think he eventually settled on the, uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and by cultivating a, one senator from Hawaii, Daniel Inouye, who became the head of the committee at some point, he was able to bring billions of dollars in, in relief of interest relief and interest payments to Israel. Um, I, I wouldn't like this. I wouldn't say this. Uh, you know, his insight was that a senator from 
uh, Hawaii doesn't need as much money as a senator from New York to get reelected, but uh, so your money is better invested in him, especially if he has, uh, you know, he's going to have be able to accrue seniority with great ease. I mean, he was personally close to in a way, and I think he admired him and, and vice versa. But um, Mike Tress, the situation simply demanded you go down there and you bang on every door. There was an occasion where Ravarin Cutler was making his way across Russia. He'd been taken off a train in Moscow, and he had, and his visa was not waiting for him, which he expected to have waiting at the American consulate in Moscow. And he would have been very vulnerable without that visa, with, and if he had stayed over Moscow longer than his transit permit permitted. Mike Tress went down on Shabbos uh, with papers that he and Rav Gedalia Shorb, the preeminent Rosh Hashiva at that time, certainly American-produced Rosh Hashiva, uh, prepared on Shabbos night. He went down to, to Washington, D.C. Uh, on Shabbos uh, after asking a whole slew of questions about how to minimize the Chil of Shabbos and just went around the State Department banging on every door. And he finally got one... Uh, in which Breckenridge Long, who was no small anti-Semite and no small opponent of Jewish immigration, but had a warm spot in his heart for Mike Tress, agreed to convey the necessary uh, cable to, to Moscow. He was an assistant secretary of state. Um, and as it turned out, Rob Aaron got on a train without that, that the, 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 the permit, but he made it, to, uh, he made it out. Um, but that was how, that's, it, you just did what you had to do. You did everything that you could do. I mean, um, Zev Wolfson never saw an obstacle in his way. He just simply didn't see the obstacles. On his first visit to a senator's office, he told his companion, Amos Boonham at the time, distract the secretary, and he just jumped over the, the wall separating the se senator's office from uh, the, uh, the secretarial staff and walked right into his office. I mean, he could have been arrested, but he wasn't. Uh, that's he just did what you what was needed to be done. So force of personality is clearly the common thread amongst many of these Stadlanim. Uh, my I, my question from uh, I I guess a biographical perspective is there's this saying that I'm very fond of that a leader without followers is just a guy taking a walk and. How is it that Tress and Zev Wolfson and Rosh Hashanah obviously leading the Agoda, but you have to, especially at the time when orthodoxy was not strong and, and vibrant as it is today, how did some of these personalities attract others to their cause? How did they get other people to say, to buy into what they were doing? Okay. I mean, they were very different in this respect. Um, I mean, Mike Tress created an Aguda movement, but he could not have written as Moshe Sher did in almost every letter he, he, he ever sent out. You know, I represent Aguda Yisrael, the largest grassroots Orthodox movement in America. Uh, that certainly wasn't true in the late 30s when Mike Tress got his start. Zev Wolfson always worked alone. Uh, very rarely worked with anybody else. As long as Rav Aaron Cutler, his Ekansadik was alive, he took direction and was eager to, to uh, devote himself to the projects which were of premier importance to, to, to Rav Aaron, such as Chinuch uh, But he worked alone. He worked under 
all publicity. Publicity was never good for the types of things that he was doing. His backdoor influence in, in D.C. would have disappeared in a minute had it, you know, faced the glare of, uh, of publicity. On the other hand, Rabbi Scheer wanted everybody to understand he represented a serious uh, uh, movement, a lot of followers, a beautiful office. He was always entertaining people for lunch. Uh, and he was a very, very classy. I mean, they all had strong personalities, but they were very, very different from one another. <clears throat> I think it's safe to say that Zeb did not win people over with his charm. Uh, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't his modus operandi. He would, his insistence, his persistence, uh, he would sit by the lowest clerk in the Israeli government to get papers stamped that he needed stamped to get his plan, uh, in the next plan carried out. But Rabbi Sher, you know, they understood that this was a leader who paid attention to it simply because he radiated a certain class, knowledge, sophistication. You know, it, you could have a governor's race between a Louis Lefkowitz against, um, I don't remember who was running it, this goes back to 1958 or something like that, where he would be advising both sides, giving them the best advice uh, for them. Um, but, you know, both sides would be talking to him. He was a person who explained the outside world to the leaders, in, to, to his own followers, but he also explained their world to to those leaders. I think that's what I think Stephen Sollers um, uh, said of him that he, you know, he was the bridge figure between two communities. He and he and he successfully formed that bridge. And then you have a very sophisticated attorney like Rav Chaim David Zwiebel today. Um, you know, Nate Diamond, who's a Harvard Law graduate. Uh, Sophisticated. These are sophisticated people, but you made a reference earlier, Michael, to court Jews. When there was a court, things were a lot easier. You know, Jews play in 50 states today. There's no one Stadlin. If you're going to do something, you better create an organization which has a lot of moving parts and a lot of people who are capable of making independent decisions. Because Aguda plays in, across the board. Uh, the government in Washington is, uh, you know, multi-headed uh, uh, multi-headed beast you're not you don't do everything through the president it's not like you know if you find the king's chief advisor you've you've hit pay dirt it's not you know the world's a very different world from the the days of uh, Jew Suisse uh, I mean uh, Appenheim it's just it's a different world I think that's a very good point, and I think that one of the things that we see today is that it's even more polarized politically than it's ever been. And you know, one of the common threads that we see amongst some of the Shadlanim that we've talked about, and obviously there are others in the Jewish Action series, but the ones that you focused on is that they, uh, particularly Rabbi Scherer at, at Zev Wolfson, it didn't matter the party lines. He was able to work with Republicans and Democrats uh, equally, I in a way. Um, you know, how do we uh, how do we understand that in today's world? How do we understand how that uh, can can Jews still do that? Can the Jewish community still do that? Or do they have to pick sides? No, we have to do that to some extent. But, you know, we don't live in an era of bipartisanship anymore. You know, there was a large consensus that enveloped most of America. When I was growing up in America, the political differences were relatively minor. Everybody in America could listen to three television shows 
you know, the nightly news, whether it was on Huntley and Brinkley or it was uh, uh, Walter Cronkite, you were basically getting the same news with very little nuance. And it, it wasn't based on a political your p politics, which news show you to chose to watch. But you'll never find the same people watching CNN and Fox News. They're just, uh, it, everything's become bifurcated and split off into narrow, narrow, narrow groups. This is a real challenge for the Jewish community is preserving that, that degree of connections on both sides because the electoral, you, you know, you see how fast the electoral things will, will switch. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the difference between 2020 and hopefully between 2022 20, is going to be immense. Uh, I don't see that. I don't see that, you know, the current president will be running again in 2024, but it, everything swi switches so f quickly because it's easy to create dissatisfaction with the party in power, but so and that means you better be prepared to deal with the, the other party too. And this is Spin Class, and we're talking to Jonas and Rosenblum, columnist for Mishpacha Magazine, uh, biographer, chronicler of uh, American Orthodox Jewish life, and... Uh, I want to focus for a second on what the lessons learned from your perspective are. I mean, you're still actively engaged in the issues of the day. What are the lessons that a younger person, maybe starting out, looking at the landscape of how to be effective on behalf of the Jewish people, can learn from some of these figures, uh, like a like a Mike Tress and a Zev Wolfson? I mean, obviously, they're as you mentioned, they're sui generis figures, right? They're, there's you're not going to replicate what they did but what can you what can one learn from the way in which they engaged with uh, people in power well first of all let's take rabbi Sheer in some ways because he provides the easiest model to study which is you have to become very well informed here's a person who had a tremendous sophisticated grasp grasp of politics relationships of people a very sophisticated grasp of people and used all those without, if you're not going to put in the hard work and, uh, you know, he was dictating one dicta belt after another all night long, just so his, he kept two secretaries busy just uh, deep, uh, typing up his notes that he, that he did when he was at home. Imagine if he had Twitter, other hand, uh, how much time he'd have to spend on that. <laughs> no, I don't think, I can't imagine, <laughs> I can't imagine Rabbi Schneider in that, uh, in that world. That Zeb Wolfson, Charlie Herrera told me this story once, that uh, he came up to Zeb Wolfson. He's, I think Moshe Bain of the OU had sent him to meet Zeb. If he said, if you want to do something, Charlie said, I have a lot of friends were young. He was young yet. He was practicing law at the time and a, a young associate at a leading law firm. And he said, we want to get involved. We want to do something. And uh, so Moshe Bain sent him to Zeb Wolfson. Zeb Wolfson said, you don't want to do anything. You're not interested. He said, but we are. He said, then show up at my office on Monday morning. Well, we can't. We're new associates. We're, we're, you know, we can't just do it like that without any warning. Okay, I'll give you a week, but you better be there. And, and then he again told them, you guys aren't really interested. Because are any of you willing to jump over the senator's, the, the, uh, the uh, wall dividing the senator's office from uh, the front of the office? You know, I knocked on doors. I kept knocking and knocking and knocking until I found a door that opened. Yeah. Uh, Nobody's gonna. Nobody's gonna make it easy for you. I mean, to some extent, it is has been made easier by those who have gone before. Whoever takes over lobbying in Ohio has a predecessor. 
Ohio, New Jersey, New York. I mean, there are there are certain tracks there. You won't start with nothing, and you won't start without a Rolodex. Uh, but and they, and many cases they really did. But um, uh, anyhow, they eventually persuaded Zev that they were interested. But you know, he was very skeptical that there were any people who were willing to put themselves out and make. Of course, he had the major advantage of had no no concept of busha. He could not be embarrassed. Simply, it did not exist by him. But that was that. Rabbi Sher, on the other hand, conveyed, um, you know, majesty. One thing I think. One thing. One lesson I've always learned from Rabbi Sher's life um, was the importance. He always treated politicians with a lot of respect. Meaning, he never talked down to them. He never tried to be one of the boys. He never, ever deviated for one second from the role of what they would have expected from an orthodox rabbi. He never told an off-color joke. He never talked about sports. He treated them as serious public officials as seeking the public good and always addressed them as such. And he lifted them up. I think they, this I think is a crucial point. I think they appreciated being treated as serious public uh, servants, not as just uh, ambitious, uh, power-hungry guys on the make. Um, that, that, that is one thing that always struck me about uh, Rabbi Sher's success. Now, clearly we're not dealing with the type of every, the everyday emergencies that they, uh, Mike Tress had to deal with of Mamish uh, Pikuach Nefesh across uh, in Europe and, and literally Jews that needed to be saved, Aaron Cutler needed to be saved on, on, on Shabbos, you know, to go out and, and do the things that need needed to be done at that time but you know i think we both know yonasan as our uh you know in our own travels uh through the uh the world of of politics and government that there are these kind of micro issues that many jews face around the world uh of of things that need to happen uh, that are you know literally pikuach nefesh um you know when when we come across these types of of issues, whether they're macro or micro, they concern just individuals or individual communities. Uh, you know, where where does one how do, how does one approach that in a way that conveys the urgency of the situation, but at the same time preserving the relationship with the with the individual member of government of saying of you know, of saying okay this is really important we must do this and convey the urgency but without burning the bridges if you will i i find that the three people that we're talking about were masterful at at doing that that that's certainly true they did it in very different ways you know there's a famous meeting of mike tress in the uh in the office of Henry Morgenthau, who was the Secretary of Treasury at the time, eventually he and non-Jews in the Treasury Department took the lead in forming the War Relief Board, uh, uh, War Rescue Board. They um, they saved hundreds of thousands of Jews, but he took with him the Kapitschnitzer Rebbe and the, I think the Bubbaver, I don't know, it was Kapitschnitzer for sure. And... Uh, and I think one of the, no, I think it was Rabbi Avram Kamenovitz who fainted in Morgenthau's office. Uh, right, the mirror Rosh Yeshiva. Yeah, and luckily, luckily the 
Yiddish-speaking secretary to Morgenthau didn't say that. He said, watch what I'm going to do now or something. But, you know, whatever. Uh, she, she covered for him. But Morgenthau became the most avid uh, uh, pusher. Uh, you know, this, the creation of, eight, um, of arts, which brought hundreds of millions of dollars to the yeshiva in funding, for, in, in government funding, was based on a relationship. You have to have patience. You have to be build up relationships over a period of years. There was one bureaucrat in the Department of Education named John Prophet who pushed every, every place where you could decide he had any discretion. He pushed it in favor of the creation of arts in, in some very helpful ways, which would not have been hap happened but for the relationship that, uh, that Rabbi Sher had with them. Um, Zeb also could offer, he could offer things to certain politicians sometimes of connections. Um, you know, you said before that he didn't play party politics. He was as close to Yitzhak Rabin, you know, as he was to any of the Haredi parties in, in, in Israel. Labor he was probably closer to the Labor Party. I'm not sure if that was a political decision, but... A practical you know, decision at the time. A practical Knew Rabin from his days as an ambassador in, in D.C. And uh, they were, he would start his trips to Israel by stopping at Rabin's uh, office and always used to see him go to his apartment in Ramat Aviv on his way out of the country. Uh, the, the relationships were deeply, deeply personal. And, uh, you know, you have to have a certain uh, uh, respect for people that, that does build up. And you have to convey, <clears throat> you have to convey to the people who are going to be representing you too, because Rabbi Sher didn't go to every meeting. The necess necessity of knowing your brief, the necessity of knowing the person with whom you're dealing, of having studied everything that you can possibly know. But then there's, you know, there there is such a thing as natural talent too. Uh, for all that, uh, you can't you can't you can't create your there's not an automaton who can just follow what you did or or Milsa the Milsa to know what what's the next step in this case. But uh, some of these cases, as you mentioned, are extraordinarily important. Arts was extraordinarily important. I mean, there are a lot of people who found the creation of uh, the uh, the Brooklyn housing project, which saved Borough Park, again involved dozens of government agencies at the federal and the state level. It involved getting a lot of young Orthodox professionals involved in, as, as lawyers, accountants, and so forth. Um, that, that is nitty-gritty work, and it, and it doesn't take place in a day. It takes place over a long period of time. Okay, as a follow-up, last question for you, Jonas. And I we probably talked for hours and hours about this, these three, three figures and others that you've written about, but you I noticed uh, one of the things that you write particularly intrigued me that you wrote about Zev Wolfson. When the economic history of the state of Israel is written, Zev Wolfson will be one of the three crucial figures in the its first half century, which is pretty uh, audacious of a claim for an American to be one of those three after Ben-Gurion and Pinchas Sapir. But it was made, I don't know if it was Ben-Gurion or Shimon Peres, but it was definitely Pinchas Sapir. But uh, that wasn't a claim made by me. That was a claim told to me by a, a senior treasury uh, 
official during the, the period of his greatest activity in Israel. I, I wouldn't make the claim myself, but there's that, that was definitely said that if you put a, up a wall of the heroes of the Israeli economy, Zeb Wolfson would definitely be one of the three there. Which is which is an unusual idea for a foreigner to be, I think of any country, to be one of those key people, a key historical figure from that perspective. I mean, what, what do you attribute that to? The amount of money that he saved the state of Israel. You know, during his period of greatest activity, there was something in the Israeli budget called Seif Wolfson, where he was able to direct government funds to helping schools in uh, Jewish schools in, in France, Jewish schools in Russia. Uh, he had pretty much discretion over his own private budget because he had saved the Israeli government so much money. You change the interest rates on, on a billions of dollars of, of loans or get loans changed to uh, gifts uh, and save billions of dollars to a very strapped Israeli economy in the 60s and 70s, early 80s, uh, you've, you've changed the, the course of, of Israeli history in that respect. So uh, he definitely, they, they knew very well what he had done for the country. You couldn't do it today. These were things where, these were deals that uh, rules of transparency and so forth would make it very, very hard to do these things today. Pinchas Sapir wouldn't be Pinchas Sapir today. He ran the country, the, the, the government's economy out of his... Uh, best pocket and, and uh, it wouldn't happen today okay the article in right. Jewish action actually a collection of writings about 20th century Shtadlanim Jonas Rosenblum thank you for joining us here on spin class is the most interesting historical perspective uh, in uh, certainly has lessons for today's political environment as well and that's it for this week here on spin class here on the Nachum Single Network stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph see you next week